Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Gary Capers, who is General Manager of Cloud Solutions at Deluxe Corporation. I met Gary at Equifax when we worked together in the commercial division of the company. Our group focused mainly on marketing data services for corporations and small businesses as well as consumers. And I was always impressed with Gary's intelligence, his analytical decision-making, and his ability to stay calm in high-pressure situations. It's been a while since we spoke, and I'm looking forward to catching up with him. So welcome to the podcast, Gary. Hey, thanks, Paul. Glad to be here and uh, hopefully get a chance to meet some of the folks on the other end who I may not know now, but you know, maybe lucky enough to have that opportunity in the future. I think we definitely will. So I think there's there, this probably won't be the last time you and I chat on this one. So oh, for sure. I always enjoyed our conversations and, uh, you know, we kind of see eye to eye on a lot of things. So this is, a, this is a good way to start, man. So I figured what I'll do is just kind of, you know, just learn a little bit about your background. So were you born and raised? A little, maybe a little bit about your family, schooling, and, and going into your first job. What did that look like? Sure. So I'm um, actually am, am an Army brat. So grew up um, not necessarily in a military family, but I was born at that time in West Germany. So I'll give you also a little bit of an idea. When wow. I was born, it wasn't quite uh, Germany then. It was West Germany. But uh, <laughs> grew up um, in, well, like, let me say I was born in Germany. Uh, we moved to the States when actually I was around three. So my mom and dad actually uh, separated when I was fairly young. When we moved over, she was actually pregnant with my, my sister. So my sister's three and a half years okay. uh, younger than me, but moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where my, uh, my mom's family lived at that time. Um, you know, grew up uh, in very much of a sort of a, a single family household, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably, you know, not, if you will, a rarity, unfortunately. But I think created a, a scenario where we had to become, you know, pretty self-sufficient, but also mm -hmm. where I got the ability to uh, really learn from a lot of strong women. So I uh, grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, attended grade school and ultimately graduated from high school there. I uh, actually attended Morehouse College. So uh, for me, I, I had the experience growing up where, um, you know, my grade school experience was, I'd call it fortunate. Um, when I was young, uh, I guess, there was a recognition that I had a bit of a, an aptitude for math. I was placed into actually an accelerated kindergarten, which I can't even imagine they still would do these days. Like how can you tell, tell a kindergarten or a five-year-old has, uh, you know, any, if you will, greater aptitude than someone else. But at least at that time, let me say, I was glad that uh, now looking back, they, they had that misfortune or that, that misguided interpretation. But yeah, well, you'd be surprised, man, because my, my wife teaches gifted in elementary school here in Cobb County, and it's, it's, all right. it's competitive, and they get started early. So yeah, it's, I, I definitely see a product of what you've done. So that's a good, good starting point for you. So, you know, had exposure to, I would argue, you know, just uh, a set of classmates, um, given that I was on that track from, from, uh, from uh, really kindergarten but a different set of classmates from a socioeconomic perspective. So rather than, you know, really going to school, honestly, with the, the folks that I grew up with, I was actually in a class from kindergarten through really um, the time I graduated high school with individuals whose you know, parents had achieved far more economically than mine, but also gave me visibility and exposure to, you know, what a life could be if you could achieve such things, you know, through your professional um, aspirations. So, Chose Morehouse College here in Atlanta and actually still live in Atlanta, of course, now. Um, Morehouse was important to me because while being in that selective environment in grade school, um, I always felt like I was being told I was special, but I knew there had to be other people out there like me. And I didn't want to I didn't want to continue through my education to feel like somehow I was special because of how I look and what classification you could put me into. Yeah. I wanted to be in an environment where I was challenged in, in, to really stand out because of what I can do and not who I am. So Morehouse was a great experience. Uh, it was an accounting major. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was in third grade that I was exposed to my best friend's father, who was a partner in an accounting firm. And I just said, that guy behind that big desk and playing with numbers, I like math. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Attended Morehouse. Um uh, honestly was in my senior year and thinking I was going to become a consultant and then the state of Georgia changed the number of hours required to sit for the CPA. Um, mm. uh, after four years of school and 148 hours, just my pride said I couldn't take another two hours to get to 150 and sit for the CPA. So 
actually went into consulting. Um, okay. So Gary, let me stop you there, man. So, let me stop you there before we get to your professional career. So high school, um, mm-hmm. you had an aptitude for math. Yeah. Um, were you thinking uh, always accounting or were you looking at some other fields as well? No, it was accounting. From the time I was in third grade and was exposed to what my friend's father um, did for a living. And again, mm-hmm. just to give you a little bit of context, we had uh, basically a day where you could go to work with someone. And so mm-hmm. I went to work with my best friend's father. And like I said, I saw, I didn't know what he did to be completely honest. Yeah. But I saw the, the gravitas that existed in that job. I saw the respect that people had for him. I saw his office, which at that time looked to me like someone's house, <laughs> and just said, I got to figure out what he does. And then yeah. I learned that he honestly, um, and, and again, in the mind of a third grader, played with numbers all day. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that just spoke to me, like the idea of being able to do math and, and, and have that type of job was, was intriguing. And so I learned about accounting literally uh, through elementary school, uh, took some uh, very sort of rudimentary courses in, in both junior high and high school. And again, Charlotte, I'm a little older, so it wasn't middle and high, but junior and high school nonetheless. Yep, yep. So I was destined to become an accountant uh, from the time I was in third grade until my second semester of my senior year in college. Gotcha. So going to Morehouse, obviously well-respected um, black college here in Atlanta, part of the you know Atlanta University uh, group. At the time, I think there was there was Clark Atlanta. There was um, I know Spelman, Spelman and Morris there. Brown. Yeah, yep, and Morris Brown's another one that uh, mm-hmm. had a good friend of mine that went there. And so um, I understand a little bit of what you're saying, where you you almost wanted to you know remove some of the element of race and just mm-hmm. kind of be amongst your peers and really just excel in what you study and, and understand that. But did you find that to be an advantage going to a, a predominantly black college? You know, I, I think it's a personal answer, honestly, but, but the answer is, is, a, is an astounding yes for me. Yeah. Um, a, I was, like I said, in an environment where literally, you know, I'm with 2,900 other black men mm-hmm. and men that are from all sort of, backgrounds. And, and, and I think that's important. I recall uh, actually a, a colleague at Equifax who challenged me in, in saying, you know, you shouldn't have your girls, you shouldn't push them to go to an HBCU because it's too narrow and they don't get a lot of exposure. But the reality is there's as much diversity within the black community as there is outside the black community. So yeah. going to Morehouse, you know, I appreciated the idea of having others who I competed with, but also then learning and, and, and experiencing different backgrounds and recognizing that we had folks from Africa, from the Caribbean, from the Middle East. And, and in fact, you know, I'll be, I'll be you know, candid with you. There's actually a gentleman in my hallway, and, and, and I remember when I first saw him, I'm, I mean, uh, his name was Shooky, was the, the nickname he gave him. But he was a white guy from South Carolina. Yeah. He grew up around black people. And so it was actually even great to have a white uh, if you will, peer or, or colleague or, if you will, fellow student at the school and also to learn from him where, where you know, he is the minority in the group, uh, but, mm-hmm. but very much at home because of how he grew up and who is accustomed to being, accustomed to being around. Yeah. But it was just uh, an environment where I would say, you know, some people may think of it as a fairly homogeneous environment, but the reality is there's so much diversity there were guys who went to class and literally went with suits and bow ties. There were guys who laid out in the in the yard and basically hung out all day. There were yeah. guys who, you know, were were generational students where their fathers and grandfathers had gone. And there were folks like me who, you know, literally the first time I stepped into Atlanta was my first day as a freshman on, on the campus of Morehouse. So it was just a, a great environment to again appreciate that uh, each of us is unique. Yep. Um, but that uniqueness in itself doesn't in fact, or, or shouldn't in fact guarantee anything. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's great. And I think I don't like labels in general, because I think I like to strip everything back to a human, you know, element. And yeah. you're right, we are different. You know, you can, you can slice up groups a number of different ways, and we're still very different and unique. And I think finding that common ground and appreciating the uniqueness is really what makes um, you know, just what makes America great. And I think we really need to figure out sort of at that level, kind of how that, that, um, how to understand that even more. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's great to, to kind of share that experience. Um, so yeah, so coming out of Morehouse, um, you know, were you thinking, uh, and you mentioned you were kind of going into consulting and there was, because there was a, a gap on, um, 
you know, in your hours, was there anything else that you were thinking um, while you were at Morehouse or accounting was still pretty much, you know, the path that you were, you were focused on? It was, it was truly accounting. Um, I was encouraged by my uh, advisor who was also an accounting professor to, uh, for my junior year, do an internship outside of the accounting area and actually did an internship in consulting, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, uh, management consulting, which is ultimately what I went into. It was more technical consulting. And so after that summer, I actually knew a bit more of what I didn't want to do, more so than knowing at that time that consulting would be the ultimate path I'd take. So yeah, the, the exposure to consulting was really uh, through the internship. And again, learning a bit of what I didn't like. Uh, the business department at Morehouse, where there was one particular you know uh, class called uh, business, uh, was business policy, I think it was, where we were asked to really look at a company and dissect it uh, financially, but to, but to almost come up with a business plan. And, and I didn't know if that was necessarily what I should expect in, in the consulting world, but at least was intrigued enough so that when I did determine it wasn't going to be accounting that I went into, you know, I, I definitely thought, okay, this consulting thing is kind of interesting because I still get to work with numbers. I get the chance to solve problems, but even more importantly, I get some exposure to a bunch of different companies and I'll eventually figure out what I want to be given that this isn't necessarily, you know, what, what at least I thought of as my, my ultimate career goal. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, for, for people coming out of college and then going into consulting industry, you know, consultants are supposed to be the experts in the field. So tell me about that transition as a, as a 22 year old, that's my age when I graduated, but you know, as a fairly young 20 something going into a consulting company and, and um, what was that transition like and how were you set up for success? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I of course can't compare it to any other job, you know, coming out of college because at least that's the one I went into. I know about others and their experiences, but I don't want to necessarily try to try to, compare it to theirs. Yeah. Well, what I would tell you about consulting is, you know, there's a, there's a boot camp element to it where you know, we went through pretty, pretty rigorous training. I mean, I recall going, I think it was the Cape Cod for, for a week. And we were even told like, you're going to have nights where you work well past midnight. You're going to have a night where you're not probably even going to go to sleep. And, and, and it built camaraderie and that we were all sort of learning these tools together. You know, what is an experience curve or how do you calculate a CAGR? I mean, just, again, what might seem random things, but things that I've actually not only used in consulting, but throughout my career. Um, but that boot camp was very critical. The other thing was, you know, we, we in consulting had a, a model where you really sort of come in again, almost like the military in more of an infantry type, type rank, mm-hmm. where your focus is how do I take you know, very sort of direct instruction, but I'm ultimately responsible for doing a lot of the analyses that were important to support uh, uh, an engagement. So you're the one that's actually doing a lot of the research, gathering data. You have interactions with the client, but very often they're on a tactical level where you're trying to work with them and figure out you know, how do I get this information and how do I make sure that this is accurate? And as you go through, if you will, those early stages as a consultant, what you start to realize is you're becoming more conversant in how businesses work. Mm-hmm. You're understanding more, not more than just how to do the analyses, but actually how to interpret that and then how that should encourage someone to take action. And really, you know, you start later on, you know, getting into the method of how do I then influence and get others to actually take action. So you, you get in at the ground level and really become, I'd say conversant in data. Mm-hmm. how to tell stories with data and then you really grow into how do you then use that information to convince people to take action which is ultimately what i think is most transferable when you start thinking about you know industries and roles outside of consultant gotcha and so for your um i'll call it your freshman class if you will but your boot camp buddies were they were they a pretty diverse group did they all come from one or two types of majors or what was the makeup of that group yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I would say it's usually not a very diverse group, though I will admit that the, the firms, and I can speak more specifically to the one I worked at, you know, have put a lot more focus behind getting greater diversity into their ranks. Mm-hmm. But a diversity, let me, let me be clear, 
um, had nothing to do with like what you majored in in school. I mean, there was a history major, there was a poli sci major, there was an English major, there was a French major. You know, I actually was was shocked to learn that as a business major, I was actually in the minority. Really? But, but they, oh, oh, seriously. I mean, what, wow. what they're focused on really at that time, and again, I, don't, I can't say what they're using now as far as the, the different factors or metrics to, to uh, evaluate talent, but at that time, they were looking for students from certain schools. Uh, just going to be candid with you. Um, hopefully that's, you know, changed a bit, but they were basically sort of almost tiers of schools. And based on the school you went to, you know, you were sort of looked at as if you then had a certain major that was known to be very, if you will, prominent or, or I should say maybe preeminent at that institution, then, you know, that puts you into a certain class. Gotcha. Then it was, what's your GPA? And at that time, what was your SAT? And so you had these quantitative metrics and these sort of uh, classifications that were evaluated and, and that really drove who got hired so that you could have a diversity in, um, in sort of majors and, and studies. You could have a diversity in sex, but you would there typically not at that time have as much diversity in, in socioeconomic and, 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 and really uh, ethnicity. Because you're always going to a certain set of schools, looking at a certain set of majors, and then a certain, if you will, set of, of, of scores. That's not to suggest that you couldn't have someone like me who came from a single family background, you know, living in an apartment all my life growing up, you know, where they are able to find, if you will, those who are still able to meet those classifications. But as you might imagine, you, you do get to a very finite set of, of candidates when you do that. And more often than not, you know, there can be greater, you know, homogeneity in that group than there is than there would be heterogeneity. Interesting. Um, did you? Um, and I know to, in today's world, I've got three kids who just graduated school, college, and one still in there. And I know that internships is obviously a big deal. So is study abroad. I know when I was in school, some folks did internships, and others like myself just needed to make cash to pay for school. So did coming out when you did, was there a, uh, an internship path to get to consulting or was it really just um, kind of, you know, based on the, the criteria that you just mentioned? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a funny thing if you ask that question because I do think there's been a seismic change with respect to that. So when wow. I was in high school, I was um, actually in Inroads, which was an organization focused on minorities, you know, those who were excelling in school and providing them with internship opportunities to get that exposure to the business world, you know, ultimately to help groom them to become, you know, they hope effective college students, but then when entering the workforce, they actually have something on quote unquote their resume that indicates that they've done, if you will, something in corporate America, but also to have a, a greater comfort level and a greater chance of successful assimilation into corporate America. Okay. So I had that actual exposure in, 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 in high school and when I got to college and ultimately did the consulting, um, you know, again, Morehouse was one of the schools that the consultancies would, would recruit from. And the business department was known for having um, some fairly strong students and, and, and very good relationships with some of the uh, administrators and, and teachers that, that were in the business school. So, you know, my, my fortune, if you will, was as part of um, uh, uh, really a, call it a campaign, I guess is the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, there is a, a set of scholarships given to students at, at Morehouse and then essentially internships that come as a result of that. And so my junior year, I was surprised to get a scholarship from a consulting firm and ultimately then got an internship in the consulting space that gave me that first exposure to consulting. So, you know, I would say that was really how I was introduced to the consulting space. I had that one class, as I mentioned, business policy, where I then had a chance to understand a bit more how to think about business strategy, but not necessarily, you know, was it clear exactly how that connected to consulting? Mm -hmm. But I was just fortunate because of Morehouse, because of some of the relationships they maintain within corporate America and, and the fortune of getting that scholarship and exposure through that, to have a chance to really look at that as an option when, when it was time to, you know, go to work. Gotcha. Okay. And I know uh, as you get into the consulting world, sometimes you specialize in a certain industry or some sort of vertical. Uh, yeah. Did you fall into one space or did you kind of 
um, get exposure to different areas. So when you start out of undergrad, um, you get exposure to different spaces. And, and that's true even for the uh, candidates that come out of grad school. Mm. So at that time, you know, my role was something called an associate consultant. And again, I would say that's the sort of the, the data monkey. You're the one that actually does all of the analyses and research and so forth. But I did everything from a fast food company to um, uh, a financial services firm to a paper equipment manufacturer. I mean, you get exposure to everything and, and, and it gives you the chance to also, uh, you know, it's something you mentioned earlier, like sometimes you're thought of being the, the expert, but what you actually start to learn, and this is some of the training within the consulting world, is you get the chance to actually learn that there are certain business concepts, mm -hmm. certain uh, problems and or solutions that are actually transferable from one industry to the next. And so you start to then notice patterns and you notice, you know, certain themes and, and, and you then appreciate sort of business that sometimes is almost um, absence of, of any specific kind of uh, 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 industry or, or it becomes more general than it is specific to, to certain things. So, you know, that's the exposure you get coming out of undergrad. As you go along, you're not necessarily, um, and this is before grad school, getting any concentration in a certain area. You start to, I think, more understand, you know, am I someone that really likes working on growth strategies or do I want to work on operational improvements or, you know, uh, organizational design? And, and you start to at least see those things, but you're still getting a lot of exposure. It was after grad school, so I, I went to grad school and then came back to consulting after. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not until three or so years, in, in my case, two years after grad school, that you actually then start to focus in on certain verticals. And, and in my case, it became uh, financial services and retail, but that would have been at, in total, call it six, six and a half years of being in consulting before I got to that point. And if you're coming in after grad school, it's usually going to be three or so years before you actually get to a point where you're focused on a certain vertical. Gotcha. So you mentioned grad school. So you're you're um, associate consultant. You're doing well. Um, at what point do you think, okay, grad school is my next step? So consulting is not unique in, in that. I think even in investment banking, a lot of the professional services uh, industries, especially on the business side, you know, there's this idea of, you know, I'll go work for two or three years and then go to grad school. Mm -hmm. I actually waited till four years. And I mentioned earlier this idea of doing a lot of the data analyses and then you start to understand how you have to convince others to take action. And when I was really in my sort of second to third year out of, out of undergrad and I had gotten my first promotion, you know, I, I really didn't feel like I was in that place where I understood how it felt to be on the other side of the table because I thought, you know, I'm doing all of this work. I'm coming up with these answers, but I'm not sure I'm that comfortable yet that that's something that if I were on the other side of the table, I would truly believe and, and, and adopt and be willing to bet my job on, which is very often how, you know, your clients are thinking about it when you're a consultant. So mm -hmm. I spent a fourth year before grad school because that fourth year for me was actually the equivalent of, and I had the same title of persons who had just come out of grad school. So I was a consultant, which is a post-grad uh, role, but I actually spent that fourth year there because that's when you then are not only leading the persons coming out of undergrad. So I got some management experience and leadership experience, but then you kind of own this piece of work and you own that client relationship and responsibility to get them to take action. And, and, that was something I really wanted before grad school. And that's what ultimately sort of triggered for me the appreciation of going to grad school, learning a little bit more from a conceptual perspective, learning more from my peers and really the professors around how they thought and executed their work as my client that then helped me go back into consulting and, and at least in my impression, be far more effective than I would have been if I had gone to grad school earlier. Gotcha. And so that last year before you went to grad school and you, you got more focused on the client relationship, that's obviously a different skill set than, like you said, being, you know, knee deep in the data and trying to find patterns and themes. Um, how was that transition for you? Yeah, it, was a, it was a challenge in that I was then a peer of individuals who had come out of grad school. Yeah. And, and it was funny because uh, one of the partners at the firm told me the story of a partner at the company who had not gone to grad school 
and how she struggled with this idea, and, and I felt it personally. Where you're, you're, as an example, one of the things that that your clients very often want to know is like, why am I paying all this money? Sure. And, and you try to justify that by telling them about your background. And so when you're sitting in a room and you got the same title as everyone else, but this person says, well. I just graduated from Harvard Business School, or I just graduated from Stanford, or I just graduated from Wharton. For me, it felt a little hollow to say, well, I haven't gone to grad school yet, but I've been doing this job for three years, so I really understand consulting, and, and trust me, I'm, I'm worth the same price, if you will, to you as all these other persons who have this, this pedigree, who've gone to these great schools. And so I, that partner told me like that was something that this person in, in the company who ultimately, like I said, did very well, became a partner without ever having gone to grad school, but she had to get over and kind of rationalize after a period of time. And I definitely felt that and struggle. What I didn't quite appreciate though, was the fact that because I had done consulting, it didn't take me as long to get up to speed and I knew the lingo and I knew how to get the work out of the, the, the associate consultants at a far better or in a far better manner and, and far more efficiently than my peers because I had been in there. But yeah. there was almost this, um, call it this, this personal um, insecurity or maybe it's professional insecurity or a bit of both that I, I was wrestling with and, and, and looking back now, you know, do appreciate just what a bit of business school does for you, which is, you know, a lot of what I went to business school to learn, I actually walked in already knowing but you almost come out with this level of confidence because now someone's basically stamped on you. You know, you've gone to this school, you've done this, but in yeah. reality, you, you, you had a lot of that to go, you know, going in, but coming out is that self gratification and maybe self certification. And in fact, the organizational or environment, environmental certification that you now are a part of this club. Mm -hmm. and that was something that I, I struggled with. Yeah. It's like, it's not necessarily imposter syndrome because I think you were, confident in the role that you played. It was just more like the introduction didn't have that piece of paper hanging on the wall, but coming out of grad school, you probably had comp more confidence than 90% of your peers because you'd already done the work going back. And now you've got that, you know, that, that graduate title behind you and you've also done the work. So there really isn't much that you needed to prove, at least certainly to yourself, you were already confident, but now others could see that as well. Right. Right. And, 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 but to be fair, you know, to some degree, I, I measured or I determined a bit of my confidence based on the impression or reaction of others. Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't necessarily reflect your competence, but your confidence sometimes is, is swayed or influenced by how others react or think about you. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes perception is a lot of reality. So I, I definitely understand that. Well, cool. So you, you, you go to grad school, go to one of the finest ones in the country, really in the world. Um, what were some things that you found going there that maybe you didn't think about before you got there? You know, what I, what I thought was, I guess, interesting in that experience is, you know, when, when you're an undergrad, at least for me, I spent a lot of time worrying about grades because I thought that would be a bigger determinant of where I would ultimately work. Mm -hmm. Going to grad school, you know, I was in a bit of a different situation in that going to grad school, I had already committed to come back to my same consulting firm. So I wasn't going to grad school to find a job. I was going to grad school to honestly learn from the people around me. Like I, I, I was able to go to class and listen intently in class and ask questions and really vibe with my, my, my classmates because I didn't have to worry about what I would get on this particular test or what this grade would be. And, and that was great because I was like a hundred percent there for the experience. I think I was surprised by how many of my classmates were in a slightly different situation. And again, some of them going to that school for a certain you know, opportunity or focus area coming out, mm -hmm. but where many of them actually only came to class and only showed up to take a test. And I just thought like, what a waste when yeah. you have 700, 700 other people here have done such amazing things that create this opportunity for you to learn and the only thing you're worried about is coming to take this test i think that was a, a bit of a shock the other thing is you know i went into school um you know uh, engaged and came out of school with you know a baby and, and, and essentially then a family and what you 
I think don't quite understand when you're an undergrad because for the most part, everyone's at that same stage in life is when you go to grad school, you've got people there all ages, all types of backgrounds, experiences, people with kids, without kids, people that are married, people that aren't, people that have a divorce, never want to get married. It's just a, it's a very different environment, a lot more diversity, though, by the look at it on paper, you would think it's a very narrow, if you will, set of individuals. So you get the chance, I would say, and this would be my advice to people who are thinking about grad school, to, to think about grad school as, as a little bit different than undergrad, whereas undergrad you're going and you really need this degree, you know, you're looking for if at all possible to get certain grades and maybe get certain distinctions and so forth. When you go to grad school, like think about where do you want to live and taking the chance to say, let me try this environment if I think this is a place that I may want to live because I can get a chance to actually live here, which is a little bit different than undergrad. When you're in grad school, you know, again, you're kind of living a bit more than just focused on the books only. Uh, that's through both the extracurricular activities the schools offer, but just the fact that you're older and have so many more things going in, going on in your life. So you, know, you get that chance to explore and live. Uh, you know, when you think about grad school, think about um, are there certain learning styles that you want to test out because you know you have that chance. Um, there are just a lot of other factors that go into it versus just the name of the institution and the major you want that I think some people may miss out on and not take full advantage of where grad school is, I just think, a bigger part of, of how you should think about your life and, and a lot of, uh, of non-academic elements you go into that decision versus how, you know, I think many of us would think about, think about undergraduate. Yeah, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I think people can be more tactical about, okay, I've made this step. Now, what's my next step going to be? What's the minimum I need to think? It's a lot of it's data driven. And you're talking about more holistic, more broader, you know, strategic vision, personal impacts. Um, now, knowing that you were going to go back to your same company, mm-hmm. that limits your, um, I guess, viewpoint for expanding, you know, your experiences there? Or did going through that change a little bit of your vision that maybe you didn't realize coming in now coming out, you're like, there's a different Gary and I've got a new way of thinking about things. So, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, I went to Wharton and Wharton yeah. is known for being a finance school. I went to Wharton because at least for me, having been at, 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 at and my consulting firm, it's Bain and company. You know, I didn't go to, to Harvard business school because I thought, why do case study, because it's, it's probably going to be somewhat easy for me. Uh, you know, I do casework all the time. That's my job. Let me go to an institution where I get a different sort of way of learning and engaging. And, and what I loved about Wharton was I didn't, I didn't focus on finance. Um, to your point, because I was going back into consulting, I mean, they had a strategic management track. But again, I'm going into consulting and I've done it before school. Why focus on strategic management when that is basically going to be me doing my job now at the school and I can take these two years to learn something different. So actually in, in some business schools, you don't have majors at, at Wharton. You do. I majored in real estate and marketing. Why? Well, I, I majored in marketing because at the end of the day, when you think about marketing or marketers, what they're trying to do is they're trying to influence someone to make a decision or to take a certain action, right? They're trying to get you to part with your money or they're trying to get you to select this brand versus this one. I wanted to know how that was done and how that was done from a data-driven perspective. Then on the real estate side, like, you know, my, my wife and my fiance at that time, you know, she had a house when we uh, were, were, were um, engaged. She lived in Florida while I lived here in Atlanta. We sold that. We bought a place there, and I just wanted to honestly know more about how real estate worked. I wanted to know, you know, how within a city is there – you know, one area that you can look at and say this this area is going to be valued this much in the future versus this one. I mean, I, I literally wanted to be able to make personal decisions and do it with information that I thought I couldn't get from any you know, other place. And I also just thought, well, maybe at some point I'll like, I love solving problems. So I, I, I don't know if I'll ever, if you will, leave the business world, the commercial world that I currently work within. But if I wanted to dabble in real estate or invest in real estate in some way, how could I make sure I made the right decisions? And, and I just took that opportunity because I knew where I was going to work mm-hmm. and knew how to do that job. So why not take those two years and learn something that can help ground my way of thinking about things 
and also be used for my own personal benefit. And so that's how I approached business school. That's, that's impressive because I think you, you probably maximized your educational opportunity there that maybe a lot of folks either didn't think about or didn't want to do. So um, that, that's great to sort of broaden. And, and I think you're, you're a lifelong learner like I am. So there's always something new um, and using any situation to take some, you know, some valuable insight coming out, you know, change some things and figure out how to make things better, you know, whether it's in a process or it's a, a business value or it's a personal experience and, and learning from that. So that's great. So, so back to Bain, um, you're there for a few more years. Yeah. Um, at what point did you think about maybe moving into industry and away from consulting? You know, for me, it was a very sort of specific event. So as mentioned, I, I had my, my first daughter when we were um, in business school. And then we had our, our second daughter, honestly, not long after coming to Bain. But what I, what I began to appreciate then was you know, my wife was working at the time. And, and consulting is a very sort of grueling um, environment. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I had a very specific case um, that was requiring me to work 100 hours a week. And, you know, I, I laugh now because I remember going into the office at 10 o'clock on Sunday nights because I had analyst calls that I had to make to Hong Kong and Tokyo. And given the, the, the time difference, like I had to reach them at that time. And, and my wife's at home eight and a half months pregnant. So I really began to think through, like, is this something that's sustainable? But, but also, for me personally, um, the firm that I worked for was a firm that really focused on not just coming up with a strategy, but also trying to help clients with the execution of that. But I, I never quite thought that we, we went all the way to the sort of end with that process. And what I mean is, in consulting, you, you develop a lot of strategies and, and, and sort of projections and outcomes based on what I would call perfect conditions. When you're a strategist or a consultant and you're basically working from the outside and sort of looking at something, you know, this is how it should work. But the things that you don't quite appreciate, you can't reflect in your strategy is, well, what's the talent? What's the culture? Like, how does this company react to competitive threats? All these variables that really you, you don't know until you're inside and then it is sort of it's 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 great to understand how to influence others to make decisions but then when you can understand all of those variables how is it that you would make the decision and i really wanted to be on that other side of the table i thought right. i started to get that feeling when i was in grad school but i really got it when i started to think you know how is it that I really want to work going forward? Is it always trying to convince someone? Is it always making sure that I leave five minutes after they do because I can justify how much they're spending? Or do I want to be in that seat where I actually own that responsibility and I carry the burden that the decisions that I make aren't just about me personally and even those in my household, but these are the, the decisions that then have repercussions and, and impact for people that are depending on me in this organization, i.e., you know, the people that, that I lead now and, and the various roles that I've had inclusive of, of the one I have now. So there was a bit of a life change, if you will, or a life event that occurred with respect to my daughter being born and really thinking about what was going to be sustainable for my family. But the other side of it was really starting to think through, like, what is it that I really want to do? I do love solving business problems, but I want to solve business problems in a way where I feel like I can be most effective which is taking those things, those externalities, those variables that are not controllable and making sure that those are thought through and considered in any decision and, and or uh, course of action that is taken. And I felt I'd be more effective doing that and in, in, in a greater position to influence and drive the right outcome being at the client versus being the person trying to convince the client. Yeah, no, that makes sense because it is, it is a different mindset. Um, there's certainly a different playing field. And there's a longer term level of ownership too. I know as a consultant, you come in and you sort of lay the groundwork, whether it's strategic, whether it's even at a tactical plan, but you may not be there through the entire, you know, life cycle of that project and certainly not from an operational perspective. Yeah. So, yeah. So move to industry now. Did you go straight to, um, from Bain to Equifax? I did. Um, and, and that's the beauty of consulting as well is you get a chance to work for a number of different companies. Mm -hmm. So you get exposed to those companies and you can decide where you want to work. And I always laugh when I tell people, if, if you took me back to when I was an undergrad, Equifax probably wouldn't have been a company that pop up on my list. I mean, living here in Atlanta, 
you know, and, and you know, Paul, you may know as well, you mm -hmm. know, Coke's a sexy company or possibly Delta or, yep. you know, there's certain companies that, that you think about. But what I actually appreciated from a consulting perspective were companies that were in need of transforming, that had established their markets, had a brand, sort of the, the Clorox or the Coke of their industry, but who had to figure out what's next and, and how do I get there? And so that's really where I fell in love with Equifax. We uh, at Bain um, actually worked with, with Equifax. I, I can say so because you know that's been, been public, but it was when Rick Smith, the new CEO came on board and really wanted to infuse a focus on how to drive strategy and how to have plans behind everything the company would do that I just love that idea of then getting into an organization at that inflection point where it's really trying to transform and seeing how I could become a part of that, that driving force to change that organization. Yeah, I think at that time there was a lot of change that happened with the culture there. And I know there was a lot of GE influence that came in with, again, you know, back to the data, you know, let's look at the, let's look at the data, let's figure out what it tells us, let's overlay that with some strategy and let's figure out a way to get better, um, be more efficient, you know, and kind of reduce the waste. So yeah. yeah, so yeah, you started Equifax. Um, you were in the. I know you and I met in the commercial side. Um, just and I don't want to get into a lot of the history of of Equifax, but tell me a little bit about some of the the learnings that you had. Now you're in industry. Um, what were some things that were instrumental in terms of you know guiding your future from there? Yeah, no, I, I started out in the strategy group, um, and and for every sort of consultant or ex consultant. You know, your typical path into an organization is into their internal strategy group, and then you're finding your way as quick as possible into the business, into some sort of operational role. So you know, I, I sort of took over, if you will, from an internal perspective, what I had recommended to the organization from an external perspective. And so it was very interesting to now move <laughs> into, again, that situation where yeah. now you got to really think about the people, the culture, et cetera, which was not necessarily something I had to live with as a consultant. So there was a better appreciation for how those things had to be really thought through and, and reflected in the, the, the work being done. But I'd say then, you know, going into Equifax at that time, when you had new leadership and such a new culture being brought uh, forward and, and, a, and a real focus on growing and, and, and creating shareholder value, I mean, that was, for me, like a, a great appreciation and, and, and really, if I would call it a, a real maturation where I had to figure out and, and, and appreciate that, you know, sometimes the, the, the best answer isn't the quote unquote perfect answer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the best answer, and, and Rick would always push on this, is what you can do quickly, learn from, adapt, and then move on and do something better. And so there's this idea, and, and this was definitely part of the GE culture as well, right? This continuous improvement. But rather than waiting for the right thing, it's how do you make the right thing? And so that's something I've really held on to throughout my career. But something I definitely had to learn and appreciate. And again, I think really get exposed to as I was on the inside instead of looking at it from the outside. Yeah, it's, you know, the saying, don't let perfect get in the way of better. Um, and if you can make decisions quickly that you can actually react to and get better. I know in the, in the software development world with this agile mindset um, of quick releases, iterative development, failing fast is another term you'll hear a lot. And it's, um, you know, getting something out to the customer and making sure that what you're building is what they actually want. Cause that's really what it's about. You know, you're building something to sell to a customer and helping them to do their business better. So, um, and it's, it is, uh, it's fashionable to talk about that now, but it's really hard for some leadership to really act on that because, you know, that's, that's a big shift from a command and control. You know, sometimes there's, you know, a lot of military influence that you mentioned Delta earlier. I came from there and there was a huge military influence just from the pilots and, you know, you had certain structure and it was to transform that culture is very, very difficult. And I definitely saw pockets of that at Equifax where we, we, um, it took us longer than we would have liked, um, but we did see the benefits to that. So very cool. Yeah. So um, you leave Equifax and uh, you go to uh, another financial company. Tell me about the, the shift from, um, from fintech, well, another fintech company, but uh, tell me about the shift from one company to the next. Yeah, at Equifax, I had um, moved into the operational roles. You know, when I was leaving Equifax, I was managing their B2B marketing uh, business and, and really 
throughout my time there, I always wanted to focus on, again, those things that needed transformation. And so I always tell people, like, I never wanted to go into the core. Like, you think about Equifax, most people would think about consumer credit reports. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to work there. I wanted to work in something else at Equifax to figure out how to make it better because those are typically the places where there's a chance for innovation. Um, there's a chance to, to look at it in a different way, but it's usually not where you are so restricted because you are sort of the, 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 the primary way the company does something. So uh, I, I sort of ran my course, if you will, in the B2B marketing space and was looking at, you know, and, and really being told, do you go back into the core or, hey, it might be time for you to really think about something else. So and I, I tell people it's, it was interesting because I was actively looking, uh, but it was a plane ride and sitting next to a, a, a woman on a plane and striking up a conversation that I learned she was a recruiter at ADP and she was responsible for recruiting a fairly good friend of mine from Equifax. And, and, and she then said, hey, you know, based on what he has done, you know, if you're like him, we have a role open in our Alpharetta office, which is, you know, suburb of Atlanta, mm -hmm. and you were looking for this GM, and I'm thinking, wow, like, if I hadn't had this conversation, I don't know if this possibly would have would have come along, but ultimately, it was a plane ride while I was looking um, to, to, for that next opportunity, and I found, again, a role moving into ADP, a payroll company, and then being a GM, which in their world is really focusing on service, mm -hmm. not focusing on go-to-market as it was at, at, at Equifax, that I went, wow, I never thought I'd be moving into payroll, and I never thought I'd be really focused on how do I maintain customer satisfaction and focus on you know solving customer issues. But hey, if I've learned how to do the sales, marketing, product side, and then I learned how to do the service and, and sort of account maintenance side, then I've done everything end to end. And, and that was really the, the thought going into ADP. So it was a brand new industry. Um, you know, I hadn't done payroll. It was really focusing on more of what I had done, very little of at Equifax, but I appreciated the opportunity to go in and just learn more about how to be a business operator. And so that was, you know, the, the sort of on-ramp and, and what I had the chance to do at, at ADP. You know, and that's... Um that is really key is to keep your eyes open for opportunities and you never know when they're going to pop up, you know, right. a, a, a just a general, um, you know, superficial conversation with somebody you sit next to on an airplane, you know, leads to an opportunity that, you know, gives you that kind of complete landscape of business that really kind of fulfills, you know, your journey um, into the business world. I actually met my wife on a plane ride as well. So <laughs> you just never know what's going to happen with somebody you sit uh, next I to. I know what you mean, yes. But uh, yeah, so so going from ADP to, you know, your current role now, um, tell me a little bit about what you're doing and, and how you got to that. Yeah, so I work at Deluxe Corporation now. And again, you'll see a common theme here. You know, Equifax sort of creating the credit report. ADP creating payroll and Deluxe created the check. But it is an organization that, as you might imagine, if you are familiar with checks, you know, mm -hmm. can't rely on checks for its future because people are you know, doing commerce and payments in a very different way. So uh, Deluxe over the last, you know, call it 15 years, has really expanded well beyond checks into a number of different places. And I currently lead the cloud solutions group at, at Deluxe. Um, the way I ultimately got there was uh, and, 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 and again, this is very similar to sort of the plane ride with, with respect to the ADP introduction. But when I was at Equifax, I actually interviewed for a job at, at First Data. And I was introduced to a gentleman named uh, Barry McCarthy, who was leading one of their business units. And ultimately, I wasn't uh, hired for the role that I interviewed for. But it was one of those types of things where when I was in an interview process, you know, this was about a, a loyalty business. Like, I didn't know much about loyalty, but I did research. I remember going through the interviews and actually getting back to them after the interviews were over and saying, look, like I, I've been thinking about this even more. Here's something else I would do. But, but sort of getting to the point, I didn't get the job, but Barry reached out to me after and said, look, you know, I haven't called everybody who we interviewed and they get, didn't get the role. And I don't want you to take it as you weren't good enough. We just went internal for another reason. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoyed this process. And I really look forward to having the ability to work with you at some point in the future. So Barry moved to Deluxe from First Data, I believe, in November of 2018, and I saw it on LinkedIn, 
it just congratulated him because I was actually personally happy for him because I was really impressed through the interview process and the follow-up after that. And, and, you know, didn't think anything of it. It's like, congratulations, but I'm over here at ADP doing my thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it just so happened that, you know, less than a year later and really in the summer of 2019, you know, Barry reached out um, as well as then the, the executive search firm and said, look, you know, I told you one day we'd work together and I'd love for you to take a look at this role, this opportunity at Deluxe. I think it's perfect for you and I think you'd be perfect for us. And, and honestly, it was a crazy time because I had just taken on a new role um, at ADP all of like a couple of weeks before this interaction. And, 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 you know, my wife would tell you, like, I really struggled because I love my manager at ADP. Things were going well. The CEO, I had a good relationship with him. But when I looked at this opportunity at Deluxe to join their executive leadership team, become one of the officers of the company, you know, my wife reminded me, like, this is what you've been looking for. And it's the next logical step in your career. Mm-hmm. So it's once again, sort of one of those moments when you can't necessarily predict and script the right outcome. But when it comes to you, you've got to be open and, and, and ready to think and listen and, and, and act. And ultimately, I did join Deluxe in September of, of 2019. You know, I've had a great experience thus far, you know, pretty challenging to take, you know, a company that has had such a strong legacy in a certain area and try to grow again those things that are outside that area and, and, and learn and also then drive the impact along the way. But I feel like I'm continuing to, I hope, improve and sort of grow as a leader, but as well, hopefully bringing some skills and some ideas into the organization that, you know, it hasn't had before necessarily. And then, you know, I hope, you know, becoming an asset to not only the company, but to the people and, and my peers within the organization. Gotcha. Well, I, congratulations, man. As a friend, I, I'm happy for you. Um, I know you're going to do tremendous things there. Um, but kind of secondarily, I wanted to get, you know, just some advice for the listeners, because what you've mentioned is you've, there's sort of been this, you know, kind of a, a vision that you've had, you know, and it's not always perfect, but you kind of have that long-term view of like where you want to be. Um, did you have to sort of adjust that as you moved along in your career? Did you always sort of have that, you know what, at some point, I want to be running a business or a business unit or have like all of these components that you were able to collect along the way. Tell me a little bit about what your kind of what your, your strategy, your game plan was as a career. Yeah, I'd say I had the vision the entire time, which is why my wife could kind of step forward and say, look, isn't this what you've been looking for? Yeah. But what I would tell you is I, I didn't know the, the cadence. I didn't know the sequence. I didn't know how each of those, how long each of those steps would take. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was at Equifax, I was very anxious and, and feeling like, look, I've done all this. I should be at this role now, this level now. And it didn't happen, you know, in 10 years. Yeah. And I worked at ADP and I go, well, I was a consultant or with my consultant firm for roughly, you know, nine, eight and a half, nine years. I was with Equifax for 10. I'm going to be at ADP for, you know, 11. And like I said, had two promotions in the course of two and a half years and thinking this is going well and then get, you know, presented with this new opportunity and and at that time go, wow, like I just took on this role two weeks ago and now I'm going to go tell my boss, like I'm probably going to be leaving the organization. So I I would just say, you know, I I had the plan. What I didn't know was how long it would take in total and definitely how long each of those steps would take. But you have to have a bit of, I would say both patience and eagerness um, along the way the patience to know that sometimes things aren't going to happen exactly when you want them to happen, but the eagerness to say, but if something does emerge, that is that opportunity, have to be willing to think about it and listen and, and possibly act, even if it doesn't feel like it's naturally the right time. Yeah, that's great advice. I think that's something that's, you know, it's not always clear, especially when you're younger, yeah. um, what that kind of looks like. And uh, so just, hearing from you and, and sort of how that path went along for you, I think is really great for the listeners. Thanks. Um, so you, um, if you could do, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself? I mean, you've, you've been successful. You've had a lot of, you know, great decisions. Um, you know, were, was there anything in, you know, back when you were younger that, you know, maybe you just didn't realize at the time that you wish you knew or anything that you might want to change? I would just, I, I would encourage the, the younger Gary, if you will, to have more confidence. Um, you know, uh, sometimes it may not be completely clear um, that, that you are great. And, and in fact, every new thing you do should feel a little 
scary. It should feel like you've been exposed a bit because you can't be great at everything. But I would say, you know, my, my biggest detriment throughout my career has been that, that sort of self-doubt and, and sometimes self-doubt at the detriment of being appreciative and, and, and sort of self-promoting for what it is I can't, I, I can do. So I would say that's probably the, the, you know, the advice I'd give my old, or I guess my young self as now my old self. But I'd also just tell all of your, your, your listeners or viewers is, you know, know what it is you can do and be very proud and, and, and very protective and, and, and honestly very bullish on that. And just understand and appreciate that no one's great at everything, but your goal and job is to continue to get better at those things that aren't perfect. But, but never use that to hold back on what you can do and, and how you demonstrate your, your worth you know, through those elements. Great advice, man. I think knowing your strengths is really key um, and being able to refine those and be opening to getting better, you know, and, you know, it's, you know, you, sports analogies are great, but, you know, if you've been doing the same bench press, you know, for five years, you get to a certain plateau, right? But if yes. you can kind of adjust what you're doing to work on those chest muscles, you will gain strength or size or whatever, you know, benefits you're looking for. And I think that's no different than in business or in, you know, um, education or even personal growth. So, Great advice, man. Well, I, I, I do want to just touch on one sort of non, um, you know, kind of business or, or career thing, but I, I just, there's a lot happening in the world today. And as an African-American male, um, I would love to kind of get your thoughts for an, an older white dude like myself. I'm really trying to open up my mind and really just hearing different experiences because I've, you know, I, I don't come from a lot of money, but I still have a pretty narrow experience in terms of society. And so, you know, for somebody um, that's, you know, come up in a, in a different world, you know, you and I've worked in some of the same places and you've also been in some really great educational institutions, but just tell me a little bit about what that path is like and what, you know, as an ally to somebody like yourself or your family, um, or even some of my friends that are minorities, you know, what, what can I do that can be helpful in this, in this world we're living in? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's literally building on what you just hit on, which is, you know, we're all unique and there's not one story that's like anyone else's, but the, the real challenge I think that has been exposed through what's happened in, in, in our society and, and maybe even the broader world is there, there needs to be greater empathy and understanding and a desire to learn more about the others. Um, and, and others, I, I, I almost cringe when I say it because it's not the idea of, I'm this and they are not. It's recognizing that I only know and have lived this one experience. And what I need to do is appreciate and better understand this person's experience so that I can then be a more well-rounded person, a more knowledgeable person, but a more open person to really how you know, things impact others and, and how I personally can be you know, uh, both a good and a negative um, you know, change agent um, for, for people in general. So. You know, the biggest thing that I, I just look back on, it, and it probably was the Ahmad Arbery incident more than anything, was that, that reality that in that particular situation, the culprits that, that ultimately ended his life, you know, made an assumption because they had no grounding for who he was, why he was in that neighborhood, and what he was there to do. Mm-hmm. But then after the incident, the people that the culprits knew made the assumption that because they knew them, they couldn't have in any way done what was assumed or asserted by everybody else. And there's just this idea that if you're like me or if I know you, then that's all there is to you. And not this appreciation that there should be this constant learning and and really quest for knowledge that would help us all connect at a much deeper level and appreciate the differences, the nuances, the habits, et cetera, that we all have and, and, and should be I guess, considered in every and in, in any type of interaction. So I would just argue and, and, and really demand, if, if I can, that we all be more amenable to really learning more about each other, being more intimate and, and, and realizing that it's that, that sort of quest for knowledge that gets us to a much higher level of, of, of I hope, inclusion and, and appreciation. And then once we get there, I think a lot of the problems that we're dealing with, I hope, start to start to almost solve themselves, but mm-hmm. there has to be a great commitment to want to get there. Yeah. I think that's, that's important is that the, there's got to be some, some action and some motivation to want to learn. And I think, you know, we talked earlier maybe about labels and, you know, I think when you get down to 
an individual level and you understand, hey, this is where Paul is, this is where Gary is, we can connect and we really understand and learn from each other. And I think it's, it's tougher at a broader level. And to your point, you can make sweeping assumptions about groups of people, whether it's, you know, by race or by sex or, um, you know, orientation or even, you know, where you're from, you know, I mean, there's, you know, if you've traveled around the world and you go, oh yeah, I'm from Atlanta and they go, oh, Atlanta. Okay. So y'all like grits and, you know, you talk slow and, you know, let me, let me slow down a little bit. Cause I'm from Boston and yeah, there's all those different sort of stereotypes that you have to sort of break down. And I think if you can get beyond that and really have that, that connection with people that helps a lot. So I, I appreciate, you know, you being honest about this. I know it's a long journey for me. Um, I, I continue to try and learn every day and try to make, so make myself a little bit better. And I want to make sure that the small circle of influence that I have, that I'm giving the right information out and, you know, um, setting the standards high enough that I don't allow, you know, some things to happen that really shouldn't. So uh, thanks for your honesty, man. Yeah, no problem. And just for you, I, I have to go. Unfortunately, the, the work keeps waiting for me. You know. I hear you, man. <laughs> well, I'm going to drop here, but uh, this has been great. Thanks for your time, man. Uh, thank um, you. And uh, we will uh, definitely stay in touch, man. So have I a good time, man. All right, man. Take care. And you have a Thanks. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.